Welcome to our new series, Song of Songs. We've waited for this uh, for several years to uh, jump into this book. We've, one commentator says it's the most obscure book in the Old Testament. Another says it's the most difficult book in Holy Scripture. Surprisingly, uh, from the early church up to uh, the Puritans around the 1600s, more commentaries are actually written on Song of Songs than any other book of the Bible. More sermons were preached on it than any other book uh, of the Bible. Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher, preached about 70 sermons on it, and yet many Christians have never really studied it. Some are embarrassed by it. <laughs> I've never preached through it. Actually, I've never preached a text on it at all. And so I'm looking forward to what I have to say uh, throughout, throughout our time together. So uh, let's pray together as we open it up. Father, we thank you for your holy word today. We believe that scripture is breathed out by God, all of it, and it is profitable. And I pray that we would learn divine wisdom here in this book of wisdom. And we would also be drawn to our King Jesus, who loves his bride with a love that surpasses even the king in this book. May we be captivated by his love and grace and care, and may our hearts now be drawn to him in worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Top 10 love songs of all time. According to Billboard, it is Endless Love by Diana Ross and Lionel Richie. I listened to it this morning. I had Alexa play it for me. Um, my love, there's only you in my life, the only thing that's right. My first love, your every breath that I take, your every step I make. And I, I want to share all my love with you. No one else will do. And your eyes, your eyes, your eyes, they tell me how much you care. Oh, yes, you will always be my endless love. Also on the list, Best of My Love by the Emotions, number 10. I Will Always Love You, Whitney Houston. And number four, We Found Love by Rihanna, featuring <laughs> Calvin Harris. Now, with respect to those who rate love songs, one is absent on that list, and that is the Song of Songs. It is the best of the love songs. You notice the superlative in the title. It's the Song of Songs, like the Holy of Holies or the King of Kings. This is the Song of Songs. Now, we know the historical Solomon wrote, according to 1 Kings 4.32, 3,000 proverbs and 1,005 songs. But this was his best song. It's the best of his songs. Weddings in ancient Israel would often last a week, and singing was a big part of all the festivities. And here you have this occasion where this bride-to-be and this groom-to-be are eventually wed, and we read about uh, their life uh, after their wedding through these various songs or this one song. Now, there are a few things that I, you, we should think about as we just think about how to approach this book, all right? Two obvious things I just want to point out. Number one, this is a book of poetry. It is either one song written at one time or a collection of songs. Either way, we are, we are looking at poetry, and because of that, we need to remember that the imagery often has layers of meaning, just the way songs do, whether you're listening to a Morgan Wallen or Arizona or Taylor Swift, Kanye West, or a Christian hymn. There's metaphor, symbolism, allegories, shadows, and similes. So when Katy Perry says, baby, you're a firework, she's not actually saying little Johnny is a bottle rocket or something like that. It's a, it's a figure of speech. Or when Alicia Keys sings, this girl is on fire. She's not saying that she's being consumed in the moment by, by actual fire. There's, there's layers of meaning. 
It reminds me of an old Seinfeld episode where Kramer tells Jerry that he's going to completely change the configuration of his apartment. And he says, you're not going to believe it. It's going to be a whole new lifestyle. And he decides to get rid of all of his furniture and build different levels in his apartment. And he says, it'll have steps. It'll all be carpeted. There will be lots of pillows like ancient Egypt. I'm talking levels, Jerry. Levels. And I want to suggest to you that the Song of Songs is to be read with that Kramer approach. There, there, there are levels to, to, to this book. And the reason you might ask, like, why was this book so popular uh, up until the, the 1600s or so? And it's because the, there was really only read on one level, which was a, a straight allegory that the text has nothing really to say about human love. It's, it's all about uh, divine love. And I want to say that we learn both. Uh, in this book. This is a, a wisdom book that does teach us a lot about relationships and marriage, human love, but it is also a book that teaches us about divine love, and I think this both-and approach is, is the best way to go. The allegorical approach is, you know, the, the approach where you're trying to make every single verse stand for something else, and when you read some of those old commentaries, they just can get quite ridiculous to me. Um, but it is analogous to the spiritual union that God has with his people. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, all marriages point to Christ and the church. And so it would be wrong for us to only read this book as sort of a dating manual or, or like a, a marriage manual or something along those lines. There's definitely things to learn for our relationships, but we need to read it with God's purposes, purpose of marriage in mind, that marriage is to put on display the gospel. And I think Solomon intended for his audience to see the correspondence between this bride and groom with Israel and, uh, and their God. Uh, you see that in a various, various ways within the book. James Hamilton, in his great little commentary, says this, The song is about Israel's shepherd king, a descendant of David, who is treated as an ideal Israelite, enjoying an ideal bride in a lush garden where the effects of the fall are reversed. If divine love is the pattern for marriage, then there must be something pedagogical and eschatological about marriage. It is an earthly institution that in itself images something greater than itself. Now, interestingly, in many Jewish contexts, the Song of Songs was read at Passover, which is interesting. You're not reading a book if it's only about romance during Passover. And so they pick it, I think, because, again, they related it to God's covenant love for his people. And Passover is set in the springtime, which is when this song is set. We'll read that text uh, next week. And what you see within the Song of Songs is redemptive language and geography that also point to something more than simply a human relationship. There's another level. And you see images of milk and honey, gardens, vineyards, wine, living water. David's son, the temple, the kingdom, allusions to the exodus and the wilderness. These were all significant features of God's covenant love for Israel. Even when he's describing the bride's body in chapter 4, verses 12 and following, he likens it to the Garden of Eden and to the temple. And so Solomon is like some of the other Old Testament writers, Hosea, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, who talked in terms of marriage pointing to God's covenant love for his people. Now, here's kind of the flow of the book, as I understand it. If you're taking notes, you could write it down in five parts, though we'll have six sermons, Lord willing. In chapter 1, 1 to 3, 5, the couple is anticipating their union. We'll have two, two weeks on this. 
and they are lovesick. They need a cold shower. I mean, that is, they are excited, okay? They are anticipating their union. Now, they're married, I think, in chapter 3, verse 6 to 5, 1. And the, the marriage is consummated in 4, 16 to 5, 1, which originally would have been the text for our outdoor service, and we decided to do a one-off sermon when we're outside on September the 10th. That's, maybe, maybe it would be good to preach all that to our neighbors outside. But nevertheless, uh, they're married in 3, 6 to 5, 1. And then they experience conflict and a brief separation in 5, 2 to 6, 3. And then in 6, 4 to 8, 4, there's reconciliation and renewed consummation. And then finally, in chapter 8, verse 5 to 14, there's some final reflections about the relationship and some final applications. So that's the general flow, I think. They're, they're, they're anticipating marriage. We see them married. Uh, surprised, they have problems when they get married. And then there's reconciliation and renewed consummation. So that's the first thing I want you to think about. We're reading poetry. It's multi-layered in meaning. That means sometimes it's difficult. There are still parts of it that I, I don't understand fully. But I think we can, we can capture the big ideas and it'll be very profitable for us as we look at it. Now, the second thing, which is also obvious, it's part of the Bible, and therefore we need to read it within the whole context of the Bible. Like the song is not written in New York. It's, it's written in Hebrew. <laughs> and it draws on the rest of Scripture, meaning we need to read it within the whole storyline, but also we must allow the rest of the Bible's teaching on marriage to instruct us here. Uh, we're, we're reading about holy romance. We're, we're reading about marriage as God designed it between a man and a woman in a covenant of marriage and how uh, sex is preserved for marriage. You see these themes that the Bible is teaching elsewhere, all given in this beautifully poetic uh, book of literature. And as we read it in the whole context of the Bible, we also read that, uh, of the, the, the fact that we are all longing for a perfect marriage and we will have one with Jesus. Right? That no perfect marriage exists except for Jesus and his bride. And so the whole storyline of the Bible is, is uh, uh, pointing us to Revelation 22, verse 17, where the Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And we join with John in saying, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. That's the union our hearts desperately need. So the need for the book. This is a book of wisdom. All of Scripture is profitable. There are many love songs of fools today that are in pop culture. This is a love song of divine wisdom. And the language and the themes remind us of God's love in a very powerful way. So let me just point you to one verse that's important, I think. In Song of Songs 8-6, the writer says, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord, or literally the very flame of Yah. It's an abbreviated version of Yahweh. The only specific place where God's name is explicitly mentioned. And his name is mentioned in relationship to the idea of love. That God's love is fierce. God's love is as strong as death. And all human loves are but an echo of God's love and jealousy. God only knows one way to love, and that's fiercely, passionately. And so as we look at this book, we are looking at a book that is about love. And so the Song of Songs helps us sort of develop a worldview, if you like, 
along with the other wisdom books of the Bible. So we might generally say that the book of Ecclesiastes is about the meaning of life. We may say that Proverbs is about ethics or morality. And Job deals with evil and suffering. But if that's all you have in your life, you're missing something important. And this book fills it in, and that is love. Ecclesiastes says this is life. Song of Songs says this is love. And when you can get meaning, and you get morality, and you're able to cope somehow with evil and suffering, and you know love, that's a good life. And Song of Songs is telling us that there's more to life than just black and white, right and wrong kind of issues. That, that's important. Proverbs tells us that. And what is the purpose of life? But you're also made for relationship. You're made ultimately for relationship with God, and we're made for relationship with people. And we need this book because, I don't have to tell you, we live in a world that is filled with sexual confusion, distortion, and perversion. Pornography is pervasive and destructive. Sin is being normalized, celebrated, and promoted all the time. Marriage is damaged, and God's Word is able to speak to us on these matters. And we need our minds renewed and not conformed to the spirit of this age. So, we're going to enter into it knowing that this subject can be quite sensitive. Sexuality and romance. For some of you, this may be a painful subject. Others of you, it may be a sweet subject. But if you're in the category of the former, then you know something of perhaps unfulfilled longings in relationships, shattered hopes, the pain of divorce, rejection, bereavement, guilt and shame, or tragically even abuse. And I pray that God's word would heal and encourage, liberate and strengthen as you think about the lover of your soul in this series. Some of you need to see the grace and mercy of Jesus that there is mercy for you if you failed in this area. That you can believe in your heart that because of Jesus, my past iniquity is not my present identity. That Jesus has made me new. And that doesn't define me. Now, as we get into this first section, I want to break it down into five parts. There's an emphasis on words. As the couple is, is talking back and forth, uh, there are some headers, markers in the Bible that translators have put there to help that, giving us who the speaker is, and it's, it's usually helpful. Um, we, we don't have it on the screen, but if you have a, a Bible, you can see those markers there. Um, so first of all, we read in verses 2 to 4 these words of longing and love. But before we even get there, we must tackle uh, the subject that hits us immediately in verse 1, that this book is claimed to be written by Solomon, and that is a problem for us because we know from other passages Solomon had a few women, right? <laughs> 1 Kings 11.3, we read that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And yet he's writing a song that extols marital monogamy and fidelity. So did Solomon write this? Here are some options. Some say the song was written by Solomon, but not about him. Others say it was written by Solomon and about him, either when he was young before he had a thousand women, or when he was old and he recognized how terrible it was as he's confessing his sin in writing it, perhaps. Or that it was written to Solomon. Someone is critiquing his life, saying this is what you should be after, pal. Or that it's simply written in the Solomonic tradition and style of wisdom literature. 
Now, we got into the same sort of subject when we were looking at Ecclesiastes several years ago, and you guys are sensible people. I'll let you work that out for yourself. Um, but I do think Solomon wrote it, probably later in life, as an ideal picture of what God intended marriage to be. It's idealized poetry, okay? Now, that gets us into the opening of the book. And there's really no introduction. Out of nowhere, this woman comes in very excited as she says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. There's no easing into this book. <laughs> I mean, out of nowhere, we don't even know who she is. She just starts speaking. And she's speaking her mind and what's in her heart, which is not always the best thing to do uh, when you're going public, you know, like she's got no inner voice. It's just an outer voice as she is expressing how much she's interested in this guy. She, she's not interested in a Bible study with him. She wants something extra. She, she's looking forward to the wedding night. Now, one thing that's striking about this lady is how assertive she is in this book. But what is doubly interesting is how she's both virtuous and assertive. She's like Ruth. You read the book of Ruth? Assertive lady. Godly? Yes. Assertive. That's her. She's, she is very, very interested in, in, in uh, getting to this wedding night. Now, maybe you're new to the Bible. This is your first time you've ever studied the Bible. <laughs> this is an amazing book, isn't it? A lot of people assume that the Bible is prudish or that God only is concerned with the spirit and not our bodies or he's not concerned with sexuality. And you see right up front here that God made both male and female sexual desires. And they are good desires to be experienced when they are done within God's plan. And that's what we have here. This lady is going to wait for uh, sexual intimacy until marriage. But she's honest that she is very attracted to this particular guy. We're struck by her longing, and she talks a lot in this book. She speaks more than the guy, 53% of the time, <laughs> compared to 34% of him. The others, other people speaking are, is like the community speaking. So she talks a lot, and she talks last, uh, 814. Good principle, really, for the wife to get the last word. Um, <laughs> and you notice how she compares his love to wine, sweet powerful, aromatic, pleasurable. Your love is like wine. Solomon was not a Baptist, apparently, as he <laughs> is thinking about this in a positive way, that this is the best of all earthly delights. <laughs> He's thinking like Jesus, whose first miracle was turning water into wine. Symbolic of what Jesus came to do, he came to bring us joy. He came to bring us pleasure. He came to unite us to himself. And she says, your love is better than any earthly pleasure. It's better than wine. And then she extols his character. Your name, is, uh, your name is anointing oils. They are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. So she's talking here about his character. She's not just interested in his body. She's not just interested in his appearance. He's an exemplary king. He's depicted with a, as a man of reputation, and therefore he's desirable. Proverbs tells us a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Nothing more beautiful than a good name. And we would do ourselves well, those you guys in the room who are trekking with me. What may we change about our character? We're reminded, as Paul tells us, that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. 
Matthew Henry points us to the name of Christ, saying a good name is his precious ointment, but Christ's name is more fragrant than any other. Wisdom like oil makes the face to shine, but the Redeemer outshines in beauty all others. We're reminded that there's a name above every name. She wants to be carried away by this king. In verse 4, she calls him a king. The king has brought me to his chambers. They're not actually uh, in the bed at this point. I think this is just pointing. The the wedding hasn't happened yet, but she is desiring this night. And in verse 7, she calls the king also a shepherd. So we're looking at a shepherd king. And this bride-to-be wants to be taken away, captured and, and, and uh, taken to uh, the chambers. She tells us how she really feels. You can sense her longing. There's something really good about marital desire and intimacy. It's good to be passionate for your spouse. And the church would do well to imitate the bride in this text. We long to be with our king. We tell Jesus, will you come and take us away? Paul told the Corinthians, we are waiting for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. That in 2 Timothy 4, he talks about all those who love Jesus' appearing. Are you longing to be with the king? One writer says, just as our desire for marital intimacy with our spouse is a reliable indicator of marital health, so our desire for daily and eschatological intimacy with Christ is a reliable indicator of our spiritual health. Can you say with Paul, I desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. The bride is not alone, as the others now chime in and say, we will exult and rejoice in you, we will extol your love more than wine, rightly do they love you. These ladies, perhaps bridesmaids, are women of marriageable age, they all agree, they approve of the relationship, they glory in the bride's blessing. Seems that they're speaking to the groom here in verse 4b, where it's masculine singular, they're speaking about his character. They're not jealous over the bride's husband. This, again, adds to the kingly messianic overtones of the passage. If the husband is the king of Israel, the anointed one, then you can see why they would admire him. And so they all collectively say that together. So we have immediately words of longing and words of love. Secondly, we have words of insecurity and uncertainty. There's some tension that's immediately introduced in the story. As the bride expresses a twofold problem, one is her appearance, and the other is, her ab- is his absence. You notice she has a bit of a negative perception of herself in verse 5, saying, I'm very dark but lovely. Oh, daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Later in chapter 2, verse 1, she calls herself a, a lily, like an ordinary flower. And here she expresses a negative uh, conception of her body. She has a working-class complexion. She's very tanned. She is like the the coarse Bedouin hides, tents of Kedar, or like finely crafted curtains of Solomon. You see, this is not a racial comment. This is a social comment. In her context, if you had a tan, it meant you were poor. It meant you were working outside. And that did not fit in that culture what was attractive. It's interesting how things shift on what is attractive, right? But you can sense her insecurity here. She says, when people see me, they they see one who's sort of unkept, and uh, I'm a a poor country girl, as it were. And the reason she's got this tan, the reason she has this working class complexion, verse 6, is that her angry brothers made her work outside. 
She says, do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards. But my own vineyard, that is her body, I, I have not kept. Seems she has no dad in the picture. A distance from her brothers. And because she's been consumed with this outdoor work, she hasn't been able to keep her own vineyard, her own body. So we might imagine her hair being messy, her appearance not being what she would like for it to be. She's been digging all day. She's been planting vines, picking grapes, keeping foxes away. She needs a mani and a petty, a trip to the spa. She needs some love. Now, she's not alone in this feeling of insecurity. One recent survey revealed that 70% of women felt depressed, guilty, and shameful after looking at a fashion magazine for only three minutes. That's just kind of the world we live in. One actress uh, was afraid to go out in public because she knew that she would never look as good as she looked on film. And this is not just a female obsession, is it? But what do we need? We need our identity rooted in the gospel and not pop culture standards. In Jesus Christ, we are holy and without blemish. He has cleansed and purified his bride. And we need to preach that to ourselves every day. I am who you say I am. I'm going to live out of that identity. Well, she longs to be with this shepherd king, and she longs to take a break from her work. And so she asks him, where are you going at lunch? Because I'd like to meet you there. And this is the way she says it. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock. That's how Kimberly talks to me before lunch. <laughs> I wish. I wish she did. Where you, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I look like one who veils herself beside the flock's of your companions. That's how you get a date right there. That's a pickup line. <laughs> Verse 7. <laughs> where do you lie down at noon? Meaning like where, it's literally like where do you take a break? Where do you go for lunch? Now, the historical Solomon did not actually shepherd a flock, but the link, again, it's idealized poetry, linking him to the other shepherds of Israel, Abel, Joseph, Moses, David, and surely that points us ahead to the ultimate shepherd king. So what does he do? He speaks to our deepest insecurities. He speaks to our doubts. We long to be with him so we can rest from our labor. To be with the one whom our soul loves. And that's what we see this king doing in verses 8 to 11. He speaks into her insecurities with words of assurance and encouragement. He doesn't agree with her assessment. He says, if you do not know most beautiful among women... Follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. It's a very interesting language, isn't it? Where, where, where do you go at lunch so I can go hang out with you? And he says, follow the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. This is an invitation to her. Riken says this invitation falls somewhere between a guy asking a girl out on a date and inviting her to hang out with his friends. So it's a public space, there are other people there, but he says, if you want to know, this is how you can find me. And he reassures her, doesn't he, immediately when he says, you are the most beautiful among women. Now, very creatively, this shepherd king begins to describe the beauty of his bride in a, in a special way. So he says in verse 9, I compare you, my love. Well, how should I compare your appearance? He says, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. He reassures her of her appearance by telling her, 
that she looks like a horse. <laughs> Can you imagine like the son's going out on a date and again the dad says, here's what you do, son. You tell her she looks like a horse when you see her. Now, it, it's an analogy, but it's also pretty good, I think. Horses are graceful. They're beautiful. This is not any ordinary horse. You notice that? This is a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. It's a royal horse. He, he's saying more than you're a thoroughbred. He's saying you are, you are the queen. You look like no one else. Your glossy black hair is driving me wild. And, and he calls her my love. He's amazed that she is his. So she thinks that her tan skin is showing that she's poor, that she's a country girl, that she works too hard, whatever. And he says, no, you've got it, you got it all flipped upside down. You are amazing. Lots to, lot to learn there. Verse uh, 10. He then talks about her jewelry, that there's ornaments. This also was reminiscent of the, uh, the mayor, uh, Pharaoh's uh, chariots as those horses would be decorated with elaborate headdresses. It's the picture of an Israelite bride that leaves him awestruck. So the king's words have set the bride at ease. She has worried about her appearance and his absence. He tells her the truth about herself, about her appearance, and he tells her where to find him. Now, how might we apply this in our relationships today? I think at a human level, you see how this bride communicates very transparently. She tells, her, tells him the things that really deeply concern her. That's important. Her standing in the community, her appearance, her access to him, she opens up her heart to him, and the king shows that he has listened to her. Very important as well. He then speaks to the problems. He shares about his location. He removes her fear about her appearance. And so it, there's, a great, there's great wisdom here on communication, transparency, complementing each other. But at the level of Christ in the church, don't we often feel insecure in our relationship to Christ? Or guilt and shame. We worry about our spiritual appearance. What we need is the word of Jesus, the one greater than Solomon, to reassure us and encourage us. Paul says that Jesus has removed every spot, stain, and blemish from his bride. And if we've embraced Christ, we are clean. He is our good shepherd. And if you're not a Christian, we want you to embrace this king. Let him address your greatest fear. He is accessible. He will have you. He will make you holy. He will make, it, make you his. So we read of these words of assurance and encouragement, followed then by words of admiration and delight. And what happens now is a back and forth compliment session between the, the king and the bride. Her perfume gives off a, a pleasing fragrance. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. And she rejoices in his closeness as he smells good as well. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. Not bad wisdom there either on smelling decent uh, if, if, if you're a dude, right? Uh, and, but this is spiritually that what we want in uh, a spouse is not one who is a stench to you and your friends and your family, but one whose character is a blessing to everyone, like a pleasing aroma. And she extols his attractiveness not comparing him to a horse, but to henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi, <laughs> the largest oasis along the western shore of the Dead Sea. When I'm with you, it's like an oasis. It's refreshing. It's delightful. 
And he then again extols her beauty. You are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. He compares her eyes to, to doves, saying that they're beautiful and probably saying innocent, something along those lines. It's, it's eye-to-eye intimacy. She then returns the compliment. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. And now we're like, this is getting a little uncomfortable. Will you guys just go over here? It looks like we're eavesdropping on this, on this conversation, but it's amazing. It, then the imagery shifts to an agrarian scene. And she talks about the couch. And apparently the couch is a field of grass. Our couch is green. They're in the field. I picture pride and prejudice or something along those lines. And the house or canopy is the trees. The beams of our house are cedar, our rafters are pine. And then the bride again returns to this idea of offering a modest assessment of her appearance. I'm simply a rose of Sharon. I'm a lily of the valleys. She is saying something like, I am just a common wildflower that you see everywhere in the country. I'm just a dandelion on the baseball field at Imago Day." But the king, again, notice, doesn't agree with her. And he says, I'm going to take your analogy and just tweak it. Yeah, you're a lily among thorns. So is my love among the young women. You see what he does there. He's saying, you stand out. You shine forth. You are the best looking. You are unique. So again, you just see how important words are in this book. It it shouldn't surprise us because wisdom literature has a lot to say about speech, a lot to say about the power of words, that death and life are in the power of the tongue. Words can wound, words can heal. I love Proverbs 12, 18. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. And doesn't that do so much damage in any relationship? The cutting words. But then the proverb adds, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And you just see how the king is speaking these healing words to his bride. And don't we have a king who does that for us? There is nothing like the word of Jesus Christ coming to our souls in our insecurities and in all of our fears. There's nothing like opening up God's word and reading about the gospel and reading the words of Jesus like your sins are forgiven. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Allow the word of Jesus to reassure you in all your moments of insecurity and doubt. Well, the final section here are words of longing again and warning. She returns the compliment by shifting from a flower to a tree. So he has called her, she's called herself this lily. He says, yeah, lily among thorns. And she tells him now, you're like an apple tree among all the other trees in the forest. You're special, you're beautiful, you're unique. An apple tree provided shade and fruit, and that is what this man does for her. He both protects and provides. She's at peace when she's with him. And then she adds, with great delight, I sat in his shadow and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Symbolic imagery of of physical intimacy. The scene goes from sitting on the green couch to being in a field tasting sweet fruit. The next two verses speak of wine, raisins, and apples. He brought me to his banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Notice he takes the initiative. He brought me to this banqueting house. can be translated as a footnote in your your Bible says, he brought me into this house of wine. He brought me. He takes the initiative, and he put a banner over me, like a military flag that waves over her head that says loved. 
His banner over me is affection. It's an amazing picture. Jesus has done something even greater for us, hasn't he? He has brought us into this special union. And if he didn't take the initiative, we wouldn't be in this relationship. He's brought us into his great banqueting house, into his house of joy. And we have a flag that flies over our head that says loved. Loved by Jesus Christ. My friends, let the love of Christ be the loudest message in your life. Let it drown out all the other messages as we live in this culture that loves to give us an identity. Even in the service, you might be sitting there thinking that. I am depressed. I am unlovable. I am a loser. I am an addict. I am anxious. I am a sufferer. And Jesus has a word over us that says love. His banner over us. The gospel waves over our head every day. The cross has confirmed this love for us, and we will never be separated from it. And she is so lovesick by this shepherd king that she needs some fruit to be refreshed. Give me some raisins. <laughs> I'm dying over here, baby. Like, when is the wedding day? Some of you know that feeling. You ought to get married after the service, actually. I've told many of you that. Like, there's no reason. Just, we've got people here. I've got a Bible. I'm not qualified to do many things, but I can, I can sign those papers. So, um, <laughs> But you're going to need a lot of raisins until that wedding day. You're going to need a lot of apples to, to be sustained because, because she needs refreshment. And then the symbolism is dropped and his hands are felt. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. A picturesque scene, isn't it? Her brothers put her out in the hot sun, but her beloved offers protection and peace. And then we read this recurring line in the, in the book. We'll read it about three other times. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field. What a way to set up a statement. By the gazelles or does of the field. These, these animals that are beautiful, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Don't rush it. And this is not an, uh, you know, uh, somebody who's a killjoy. This is a woman saying this, who's actually deeply in love, who opens up with her excitement in the book, and she's saying, don't awaken these feelings until the time is right, until it's with the right person. Because if you awaken these feelings, it can lead uh, too soon. It can lead to great damage. Let it sleep until it's the right time. Don't stir up the fire until the time is right with the right person. And so that is how this great book, The Song of Songs, begins. This beautiful picture of this shepherd king and this bride. And you may read this and think to yourself, even if you are married, this is a bit frustrating because this is not what I've experienced. Maybe you think that if you're single. And that's why I've opened up by saying we must read this passage in light of the whole context of the Bible. We are all headed to the perfect marriage. If you're in Jesus Christ, we are waiting for the consummation of Christ and his church. We are all waiting on the perfect marriage that will be filled with boundless joy. Jesus' love is not just better than wine, it's better than life. And this book isn't designed to frustrate you, but to center you on Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus offers to the whole world. If you're not a Christian, he offers a relationship with you. He offers to be united with you to fill you with delight and to be with you forever, to protect and to bless, 
That's what Jesus Christ offers. This relationship between this husband and this bride in this book, Song of Songs, is but a shadow of an echo of Jesus' love for his bride. He will bring us into his great banqueting house. And right now, his banner over us is love. He will never let us go. She is embraced at the end of this scene by her shepherd king, and we are forever held by the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ, our great shepherd king. And Father, probably some in this room need a a renewed sense of joy, a renewed sense of confidence that the banner of Jesus of love is flying over them. And I pray even now as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper that this would be an occasion where we pray, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Restore to me the joy of this relationship that I have with Jesus Christ. We thank you, Jesus, for your care for us, for your word that you speak over us. And we pray as we enter into this time of holy communion, you would continue to speak to us. And we pray this in your good name. Amen.